Hi, everyone. Welcome to Mary Campagna's podcast, Lessons in the Dark, Understanding American Education in the 21st Century and How We Got Here. Before we get started, if you'd like to know a little bit more about Mary and all the cool stuff that she's done, please head over to her website. The link is in the podcast description. While you're there, maybe check out the blog, leave a comment. I know she'd love to hear from you. Anyway, thanks for listening. Let's get started. Campania. Welcome to Lessons in the Dark. This is the first in a series of podcasts with expandable categories that explore education in America. First, let me make it clear this project is not meant to be a scholarly review, but an exploration of education written by a teacher, and that's me. I've been teaching since the 1990s, my goals for these podcasts and videos include creating a forum for dialogue about education between teachers and students, providing a resource for teachers, parents, students, and other citizens, and providing valuable information about what's really going on behind the brick walls of the current educational system in America, as well as some insight as to how we got here and some suggestions regarding ways that we can make positive change. First, I'd like to talk about a brief history of the public school system in America. The first school in America was built in the 1600s in New England. In fact, New England was one of the first areas in the country to educate women in academics. The South was later to catch on, but there were a few schools in the Tidewater area by the 1600s. By the early 1700s, there were a few Catholic schools in the East However, in the South, wealthy planners usually hired tutors to educate their children. Learning to read was most often a forbidden activity for African-American slaves. Some slaves were tortured and killed if they were caught reading a book. After the Civil War, the first tax-supported schools were created, but were often segregated. Black schools were normally inferior in every way possible to white schools, and this continued until the Supreme Court intervened in the mid-50s, ending the practice of segregating schools. As early as the 19th century, missionary schools for Native Americans were established throughout the country, but some white missionaries kidnapped American Indian children, violently separating them from their families and brainwashing them as to the superiority of their brand of Christianity. These children were forced to worship, dress, speak, and live as white Christian settlers. They were often beaten and abused. If that was an example of tough love, it continues to leave a bad taste in the mouths of most Native Americans. Education in America has always followed major social and economic movements, such as the Industrial Revolution in the 18th and 19th centuries. But true academics, reading, writing, math, and science, did not take off within the school system until the mid-1800s, and even then, many women and most African Americans and other minorities were excluded. Yet, by the early 20th century, a growing number of children in the U.S. were expected to attend school. By 1950, the percentage of American children attending school had grown substantially, but there were still large pockets of agrarian communities where education was a sporadic and inconsistent pursuit at best. Most of us recall hearing about the romantic one-room schoolhouse with the pot-belly stove in the middle of a hardwood floor, 
I always imagined it to be a log cabin. Desks were primitive and appointed with inkwells where the boys would ritually dip the girls' braids and make them scream. There was one female teacher dressed in a long skirt with a high collar, her hair in a bun. And she stood in front of a chalkboard and somehow successfully differentiated her instruction in a variety of academic areas for grades 1 through 12. At least that was the little house on the prairie version of the scene. The 1970s drama was based on Laura Ingalls Wilder's books about life on the prairie for South Dakota settlers in the 1800s. In The Waltons, a 1970s television series based on Earl Hamner Jr.'s life in rural Virginia, John Boy's character goes on to attend Boatwright University. He moves to New York City and becomes a successful writer during the Great Depression era. Catherine Marshall's depiction of education in the mountains of Appalachia in Christie is probably the closest to the reality that struggling early teachers experienced. Parents were sometimes uncooperative. Disease and malnutrition were rampant. Loneliness, lack of money, and supplies were constant obstacles. This story, based on the life of Marshall's grandmother, could have been taken directly from her grandmother's journal. Readers and audiences of these primitive descriptions of early teaching are often impressed with a few outstanding images. The eagerness of most students to learn. Realizing that learning is a privilege, students' respect for the learning process, however rote or monotonous it may have been at the time, and the students' unadulterated respect for the teacher. Teachers were, by and large, expected to be the personal mentor of each student and a known friend and educational consultant to each student's family. They were expected to conduct themselves as ladies and or gentlemen in polite society, whether or not any other polite society existed around them. They were expected to set high standards for their students, largely standards of behavior and expectations for productivity and progression of appropriate intellectual development. They often rode on horseback or walked for miles to guide, nurture, or console students and their families. They were usually expected to appear in church, if there was one, to be active in whatever social or religious institutions were recognized and accepted by the students' families. No hint of scandal was ever to vent itself regarding a teacher. And that unspoken rule has remained the same for over a hundred years. A few teachers have broken the rule and almost all of those paid dearly for their indiscretions. Native American students, African American students, and Asian American students were traditionally reared to view teachers as lofty and heroic, particularly teachers from their own cultures. Of course, there was a time when almost all American children revered their parents and grandparents, as well as their teachers. But those days have gone with the wind. So what happened? Well, we can't really talk about the inequality in the schools and the fight against it without talking about the court decision Brown versus the Board of Education and what has happened since that decision. The National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP, was founded in the early 20th century to fight overt racism in the country. 
One of the organization's early major concerns was the Supreme Court's continued habit of supporting Jim Crow segregationist laws in the South, particularly concerning transportation, education, Medicare, medical care, housing, and employment. The results of these discriminatory practices were devastating to all non-white Americans, including Native Americans, and the policy did not end until the mid-1950s with the Supreme Court's Brown versus the Board of Education decision. However, most Southern states were slow to implement true integration, and some forms of discrimination continue. In fact, in 1959, Prince Edward County, Virginia, chose to close and lock the doors of its public schools rather than to integrate, as was ordered by the court. The black schools there at the time were substandard and unfit for human habitation. The earlier separate but equal policy was never equal, according to Nellie Brooks Quander, the principal of an elementary school in Alexandria, Virginia, in the 1960s. I interviewed Ms. Quander, an educator, administrator, and social activist, when I was a middle school student in Northern Virginia. She was deeply concerned about the inequalities that her school continued to face, such as deficits in books and supplies, advantages that were readily available in areas where more white children attended educational institutions. By the early 70s, busing was approved by the courts and used across the country to implement total integration of schools. However, strong resistance to busing continued, and in the mid-1970s, some courts began to ease their insistence on busing as a means of achieving integration. Detroit managed to legally resist busing for many of its students, and other cities violently protested the practice. In the late 1990s, a court decision declared busing to be an antiquated way to achieve its goals and gave students the free choice to attend schools in their own neighborhoods. So by the early 21st century, busing had virtually disappeared in many areas of the country, and some judges agreed with other civic and community leaders that achieving integration via busing was less important than achieving the highest academic standards. Gradually, a pattern emerged that led to primarily black schools in many communities, much as they were during the Plessy versus Ferguson era of the late 19th century when separate but equal was the accepted norm. White flight, or the practice of white families taking their children to private parochial or charter schools, often outside of their home districts, added to the death of any hope of true integration within the American school system as a whole. Magnet schools and some exclusive programs such as International Baccalaureate tried to attract higher level students of all races. However, many cities and towns eventually dropped a, a significant number of these due in part to the cost of training teachers to implement the programs. Since Jim Crow, politics and employment practices have continued to some extent, despite a body of progressive civil rights laws that have long been erected a substantial number of black families are left out of the loop when it comes to living in the upscale neighborhoods where they might like to live. Thus, even though the law now supports fair housing, the history of discrimination in America still makes that dream nearly impossible for a tremendous number of African-American families across the nation. These patterns born of suppression and greed affect Native Americans, Hispanic Americans, and African Americans, as well as other minorities. 
School choice might be a logical option, but school choice takes on a different meaning when charter schools cost communities millions each year and take money that would have been used for such needs as special education, school counselors, and other necessities every time a student abandons the public school system to attend a charter school. I would add that charter schools may not hire licensed teachers, but unfortunately, since charter schools and private schools have become so popular, public school systems are running into a dearth of licensed teachers. Thus, smaller towns like Christiansburg, Virginia, are now making plans to hire individuals with merely a college degree to teach in 2020. Any teacher who has struggled and studied to pass the praxis, praxis exams in Virginia knows that there is much more to proper teacher preparation than a college degree. I was a little girl in primary school that day in 1963 when Dr. Martin Luther King addressed the country with his I Have a Dream speech. I marched with my church for jobs, freedom, and equality for all Americans, and I stood just a few yards from Dr. King when he spoke. I knew then, as I do today, that I was in the grip of history, and I knew this man's desire for peaceful protest and nonviolent change was the mark of greatness in him and in the people whom he addressed so eloquently, the nation. I believe that eventually this light re representing a powerful love and a unique, unsurpassed harmony would swallow up the darkness that had inflicted America with hatred within its schools its transportation systems, its employment offices, and other areas of community life. But just months after King's 1963 speech, President John Kennedy was murdered in Dallas, Texas. The greatly beloved leader was mourned by people from all over the world. Then King was shot and killed in 1968 as he protested the war in Vietnam in his writings and speeches. Senator Robert Kennedy was shot and killed a few months later. The grief and horror felt by the African-American community could not be measured and is still tangible today. My family and I were horrified and grief-stricken too. I was a white child from a family of ministers and social workers, and I was convinced after the deaths of the Kennedy brothers and King that our country would never be the same. I felt that we as a people had fallen victim to the disease of malice and the terminal cancer of contempt for our fellow Americans, for anyone who was different or had any idea that seemed foreign to us. That is not to say that there were not thousands of caring and loving individuals living in America, for that has always been the case. But I felt then, as I do now, that as a nation, we had somehow lost our way. The Vietnam War and the war in Iraq seemed a further validation of my conviction. In the era of President Donald Trump, this disease expresses its most obvious symptoms in continued racism and hostility. But loss of respect for parents and teachers was a long time coming. Europeans had settled here in the colonial era hoping for religious and educational freedom, yet the early settlers were unwilling to keep their promises to the indigenous people who already lived here, 
Native Americans. By the turn of the century, the federal government had broken every treaty it had ever agreed to with Native American tribes in the western part of the country. Slavery was legal in all the colonies by the time the Declaration of Independence was signed in 1776 and continued through the 19th century. As we all know, even as slave owners kept up the ritual of attending church each Sunday, non-believers must take pause to think of the Negro spirituals that were born from those times and the power of faith that many of the slaves must have had to have endured rape, torture, and the decimation of the family for so many generations. Thus, America as we know it was built on decay. Yet, I graduated from high school in 1972, and my history books either skimmed over or totally ignored the truth about what happened to the indigenous people and the slaves. I was taught to take pride in the military-industrial complex so valued by President Dwight D. Eisenhower, who was president when I was an infant. I was born into a simpler time. If you were a white, middle-class kid living in the suburbs, as I was, integration had not occurred yet. My family had a black nanny who did most of the cooking when I was a small child. I was closer to Polythea than I was to my own mother, but the day we went to pick her up on a Wednesday in the rain was a day I will never forget. She decided to have every family she worked for arrive at the same time on the same day. There must have been 10 cars lined up. My mother laughed and I cried. She wanted us all to understand that she was not our Polythea. She had a full life, children of her own, a sore back and several baskets of ironing of her own to do. I suppose that day made me wake up to the feelings of others. And years later, when I myself experienced homelessness, I began to understand the anger and frustration of the oppressed people in our country. People who try and try and work three jobs and still are unable to afford appropriate housing, enough food, and proper medical care for their families. To put it more succinctly, the children we teach in the public school system are often the children of the oppressed, be they African American or Caucasian American, Asian American, Hispanic American, Middle Eastern American, or Native American. Those are the children of Obama voters and Trump voters, Clinton voters, Bernie Sanders voters, and non-voters. The wave of generations X, Y, and Z are all in some sense oppressed as much as they are in some sense greatly advantaged. Even though many of our students today have plenty of exposure to Xboxes and iPhones, Androids often used by students in the classroom during instruction, they have exposure to social media, chat rooms, laptops or tablets, televisions, and other sorts of emerging media outlets. They are often overwhelmed in a society that values money, things, entertainment, and appearances more than real people, real families, and real ideas. 
Indeed, the real is less important to young people today than the appearance or the artificial copy of a reality that produces nearly instantaneous results, a glossy and gleaming produced reality that is based on information but not inspiration. Factual knowledge without wisdom and spiritual insight can be dangerous. The pace of society has picked up a hundred times in the last hundred years. People in small towns and big cities are moving faster and more often, but often without direction. This week is the 30th anniversary of the World Wide Web. Technology is making communication happen at an astounding rate, yet satisfying and sustaining relationships are rarer than ever before. Adults, the supposed mentors of children, are often frustrated and confused even when money is not a concern. The entertainment industry has mushroomed in this country so that postmodern heroes are no longer community members whose spiritual strength combined with physical exertion has earned them marks of distinction, but sitcom actors whose lives reflect nihilism and greed and rap artists who create lyrics based on misogyny and violence. And by the way, I have used rap in the classroom successfully, and I know that not all rap art is negative. In the book, The Loss of Happiness in Market Democracies, author Robert Lane writes, the haunting spirit is manifold, a post-war decline in the United States of people who report themselves as happy a rising tide in all advanced societies of clinical depression and dysphoria, especially among the young, increasing distrust of each other and of political institutions, declining belief that the lot of the average man is getting better, a tragic erosion of family solidarity and community integration, with an apparent decline in warm, intimate relations among friends. Certainly, the excesses of late capitalism bear some of the blame for problems in the contemporary classroom, but many teachers believe that the total decay of society is the primary villain. When the very foundations of our democracy are based on lies, eventually it catches up with the geist or psyche and spirit of our children and the zeitgeist or spirit of our times the country's conscience. Children are not educated in a vacuum. They are growing sponges who absorb love or hatred, violence or peace, spiritual power or spiritual drought, true heroism or fake idol worship, the presence of equality or the existence of inequality, the thrill of freedom or the despair that comes with the lack of freedom. They soon come to understand creativity, metaphor, and mystery, or the sad lack of them. Our students are not machines. They are not numbers. They cannot be easily charted or measured, passed or failed. They are the valuable human beings in whose hands we put the future of mankind not just our country, but mankind. Yet our children are killing themselves in droves. 
They are turning to opioids and other illegal drugs. They are depressed and dying. They are dropping out of class and turning away, not just from mediocrity and the status quo, but from life itself. Prayer without action is not enough, though I strongly believe we must start with prayer. And the prayer must be for ourselves and our own dreams, not just for our children and their dreams, because our dreams will feed theirs. Our determination to find light in the midst of this darkness will inspire them to find their own way. But first, we must look in a mirror that reflects our history as well as our present, our shadow as well as our glory. The mirror is not our enemy. It's the only way. And we, as teachers, when we stand in the classroom, we must tell the truth. In our next podcast, we will discuss the standards of learning, and in succeeding episodes, we will discuss drugs in the classroom and cell phones in the classroom, classroom management, teacher salaries, class size, and other concerns of contemporary teachers. Later, I will be interviewing teachers from all over the country as we explore many other aspects of education in America. All right, that's it for episode one. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Hope you all enjoyed it. We'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a rating and a review. Subscribe if you like it. If you want some more information or you'd like to contact Mary, there's a website. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Reddit. All of the links are in the description. Next episode should be out March 27th, so stay tuned. Mm -hmm.